0: This morning we're going to continue our work through the Gospel of John, as we've been doing as of late, with that question before us, who is this Jesus? But before we read our text for this morning, let me just kind of set some framework. Uh, We just were in chapter 5 of John, and what we saw in chapter 5 happen was there was an action at the beginning of the chapter where Jesus healed this man at the pool of Bethesda. And then, for the rest of the chapter, there was an explanation of what that action told us about who Jesus was. And the action informed the conversation, and the conversation came out of the action, and they all went together, even though we looked at them in two different sermons. Well, in many ways, we have the same thing happening again in John chapter 6. Something's going to happen at the beginning of the chapter that will then lead into broader discussions and debates about what does that action teach us and what does that mean. But that creates a bit of a dilemma for the preacher. Because on the one hand, we want to make sure that we understand that all of John chapter 6, all 71 verses fit together and tell one story. And so there's a desire to, to keep that focus and to maybe preach one really long sermon on that really long text. But then you'd have to skip over so much stuff. And on the other hand, uh, for example, there's this thing called the common lectionary that a lot of churches use. It's a three-year cycle that encourages churches to preach through the, the scope of Scripture. It doesn't cover everything, but it kind of covers most of th- the, the Scriptures. And even in that broad scope, there are five weeks dedicated to preaching on just this one chapter. There's so much rich detail. However, by the time you get through five weeks, you've forgotten where you started and you've lost track of how those two things are playing together. And so, just to be abundantly clear, we're going to take three weeks to work through John chapter 6. And there are things that, you know, happen today that I'm not going to really explain what they mean, because that's going to be developed more next week. But next week, don't forget that everything that's talked about came out of the setting that we're going to be looking at this week. Just recognize that all of this fits together to, again, help inform us who Jesus is. So with all of that background, let's go ahead and read our text for this morning, which is John chapter 6, and we're just going to be looking at the first 21 verses. If you have your pew Bible in front of you that can be found on page 1059, the words are also on the screen, and we were going to be getting rid of the printouts, um, saving some paper moving forward. You can look it up in the Bible, or you can use the words on your screen. But again, uh, from John chapter 6, where we'll be reading the first 21 verses for this morning. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if Pastor Patrick hadn't gotten Cody up this morning up here this morning, he could have gotten any one of us up here, and he could have asked us about things that we do that are easy, things that we do that are more challenging, that we are proud of, that only a few people are able to do, and then those are those, and then those things that we wish we would be able to do, but quite frankly, are impossible. You know, unfortunately, I fear that when we come to church sometimes. And we hear the Ten Commandments, or say the Ten Commandments, read to us. When we read other portions of Scripture that explain how we are called to live as followers of Jesus Christ in a fallen and broken world. Or we hear a sermon and the application of it is is challenging and, and tells us that we ought to respond in a particular way. That again, my fear is far too often we hear those things and our response is... Well, that's just impossible. I'm never allowed to tell a lie. I'm never supposed to cover anything, covet anything. That's impossible. I can't ever get drunk. I have to wait until I'm married. That's, that's impossible. I can't do that. And again, my deep concern is that as soon as we say, well, that call, that challenge, that invitation into a right and righteous life is impossible, then what we do is we excuse sinful, wrong behavior. And we say, well, since it's impossible that I can't completely do that perfectly, then, well, why try? And I'll let this slide, and I'll let that go, because... It's impossible. Well, to not bury the lead of the text that we just read for this morning, what we just witnessed or heard told uh, to us is when Jesus does at least two absolutely and completely impossible things. It starts with the feeding of the 5,000 The scene is set for us in the first four verses of the chapter, and while these are just details kind of laying out when this scene takes place and and how it unfolds, there are some details that I want to make sure that you don't miss, because they end up kind of being significant, but might be easily able to, to overlook. First of all, we see Jesus is continuing to grow in his popularity despite the fact that there are these challenges and arguments that he's having with the religious leaders, the people are starting to grow more and more attentive to the things that he's saying. And they are gathering around him, and, and no matter where he goes or where he travels, these crowds are coming in larger and larger amounts, further and further away from their homes, to be around Jesus, and we are told why that is happening. And it says in our text in verse 2, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So they're there because Jesus is a miracle worker. And they want to see what's going to happen next. Or maybe he can do something for them, for their health, or for their life. And so that's why they're following him. Another little detail that that seems to be a surprise comes in verse 4. Well, out of nowhere, there's this throwaway comment that this is taking place when the Passover feast was at hand. This is the second time in the Gospel of John that he mentions we're in the Passover season. There will be a third one coming up at the end of Jesus' life. But again, why mention that? You see, there are many, that were, you know, even if you recognize it, everything else we read, it seems like it's an irrelevant comment to the rest of the story. It really has no meaning whatsoever or significance. However, there are others that actually say that that comment becomes the key, the most important of details in helping us understand what takes place and how to understand and interpret it. So... Through the season of Lent that we just finished at Easter, as a church, we went through this whole series of how Jesus fulfilled the feasts and the festivals of the Old Testament. And there are many who say that in the Gospel of John, in the section that we are right now, between chapter 5 and chapter 10, that that's exactly what John is also doing. He is showing us how Jesus fulfills the feasts and the festivals of the Old Testament. And so as we saw with reference last week, or I mean, sorry, in the last chapter to the Sabbath, we see in chapter 6 reference to the Passover, and we will see reference to the Feast of Booths in this section, and in many ways what what John is doing is exactly what we had just done, is explaining how Jesus fulfills these. So while that comment about the Passover seems to be an odd offhand comment, don't miss the fact that that could be key to understanding a lot of what Jesus is doing and saying about himself. So don't miss that detail. Now when we get into the story itself, it's, it's initiated by a recognition of this problem. There is this huge crowd that has followed Jesus and his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And while they are there in a the gathering together, it's time to eat. But there's no food. Now, the first question that we have to kind of ask in this text is, well, why should that matter to Jesus? You know, if all of these people were going to travel this distance just to hear what Jesus had to say, they should have thought uh, in advance and brought something with them if they wanted something to eat. That was their responsibility, their thing to worry about, not Jesus's. So why does he even get involved? It's not his problem. But in verse 5, we see this statement. where Jesus It says, lifting up his eyes then, And seeing that the large crowd was coming toward him, and that phrase, lifting up his eyes, reminds us of a phrase that Jesus used just a few chapters earlier in chapter 4, verse 35, when Jesus was in Samaria talking with this woman at the well. And the disciples come to Jesus after he has this conversation and they ask if he was hungry, if he needed something to eat. And his response was that he didn't need anything to eat because he had food that they didn't understand. And then he calls them to lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Jesus didn't have to worry about this problem. It wasn't his issue that this crowd of people were getting hungry. But one of the main things that we do learn about Jesus in this passage is that he is a provider. He sees the needs of the people and has compassion on them. He knew that these people needed food that only he could give. And so he's going to provide for their need. Knowing that that's what he's going to do, he tests his disciples. People that had been walking with him, had been seeing his miracles, had been listening to his teachings. And he wanted to see how they reacted to this situation, to this need. But all they see is the need. Philip responds to Jesus' question about how they're going to get them food by saying that it's going to cost 200 denarii. Uh, More than 200 denarii worth of bread so that everyone could get just a bite to eat. Now, each denarius was worth a day's worth of work. You work one day, you usually received one denarius. That was your reward. And so each denarius is worth a day's worth of work, meaning that 200 of them is, is more than half of a whole year's worth of wages. To, to put that in a modern context, I, I searched, what is the average income of someone in Escalon? And I found a website that said that the average household income in the city of Escalon in 2018 was roughly $71,000 a year. Divide that by 365, you get the $195 earned each day. Multiply that by 200, and you get the equivalent of a cost of a meal for 5,000 people being about $39,000. If you divide that by just 5,000, that's worth $7.78 per person, which makes sense. That's about how much a a meal would cost per person. But that's assuming there is just 5,000. Most people believe that the 5,000 is just counting the men, and there were likely many women and children along with them, meaning... That again, if you wanted to pay for this, no one would have that much amount of money. None of you, none of us, even collectively, could come up together with $39,000 offhand in order to feed 5,000, this many people. And so the need is great. They certainly don't have the money. And the supply of food is extremely low. Andrew, another disciple, he highlights that they were able to find some food, but what they were able to find was five loaves of barley bread and two fish. Now, first of all, recognizing that this is loaves made out of barley, uh, commentators say that that highlights the fact that this is a poorer person's meal. Um, barley was the cheaper of grains, and so that's what they, the poorer people, would eat. And by the way, also in referring to five loaves, it's not like he was carrying around five sacks of wonder bread. Uh, these were probably the size of like a Twinkie, um, and this was his lunch: a couple of you know loaves of, of bread and and two probably smaller sized fish. That's what he brought for himself to eat. The whole point being, compared to the need. The supply is not only ridiculously low, it's it's absurdly low. It's impossibly low. There is no way that five loaves the size of a Twinkie are going to feed more than two people, uh, let alone 5,000. It is impossible to feed this many people with that little of food. But it wasn't about the fact that the need was so great. And that the supply was so little. It was about the fact that Jesus was with them. And when you are with Jesus, Jesus does the impossible. He prays. And he breaks the bread. And he feeds. And he feeds. And he feeds. Not just so that everyone gets at least a little bit of a bite, but we are told that everyone was able to eat their fill. Everyone was not just satisfied, but they were full on this meal that Jesus impossibly provides. And beyond them being full, that meant that there were leftovers, and they collect the leftovers by Jesus' command, and when they do, they are able to fill 12 baskets of leftovers from what started as five loaves and two fish. Now again, that number 12 catches a lot of people's attention. Some think it has something relating back to the 12 tribes of the Israelites. Others suggest that maybe it's one basket full of food for every one of these doubting disciples that thought that the task was far too much. But again, without a doubt, Jesus... In sympathy to the crowd does the impossible and he feeds them. He gives them food that only he can provide. And they notice They notice that another miracle has taken place. They are starting to recognize that indeed Jesus is the prophet that Moses had told them about. One like him that would come. That they were called to listen to. Who would lead them in the way of the Lord. And so understandably their reaction to seeing what Jesus has done is that they want to make him king. They want to put him on the throne. They want to claim that he's the new leader that's going to lead them into a new and great promised land just like Moses had led the Israelites. Who doesn't want a king like this? I mean, even politicians today, what's their biggest promises? I'll give you free health care and I'll feed you for nothing. And people will vote for that person over and over again. And so, of course... Let's get Jesus. He's giving us free health care. And he's giving us food. But while their conclusions about who Jesus was were correct, their interpretation and application of what that meant is where they got it wrong. Jesus hadn't come to take up a throne He hadn't come to be a political leader. He hadn't come to give them free health care or to feed them constantly. He was there to do something so much bigger and greater than just for them, but for the whole world to restore their relationship with God, something that will be developed a little bit more next week. And so to prevent them from doing by force what Jesus never was there to do, he kind of separates him from himself from the crowd and he he goes off by himself and he he seems to at least tell the disciples to to also do the same thing. That's the best we can do to make sense of why they would just leave him is cuz he encouraged them to also kind of distance themselves, but for whatever reason that night, uh the disciples get into their boat and they head out. And as often happens in the Sea of Galilee, a storm comes up. But they're experienced fishermen, and so the storm doesn't seem to bother them all that much. They're used to dealing with this rough seas. However, we are told that something does frighten them that night. When they're about halfway across the sea, they look and they see someone is walking toward them On top of the water. That scares them. And that makes all the sense in the world that that would scare them. People walk on the land, they swim in the water, and here there was something doing the impossible. It is literally impossible to walk on water, it doesn't happen. For those that, by the way, highlight the comment about the being, this being near the time of the Passover, they see in this examples or, or, or in this story parallels between the Red Sea crossing and this walking on water. In both situations, there was a, a body of water separating the people of God from where they needed to be, and God does something miraculous in order to overcome that obstacle. But in this fear, what calms the disciples down is when Jesus says to them, as translated in the ESV in verse 20, it is, I do not be afraid. Now to be abundantly clear, that's a very fine translation of the passage, which in Greek is ego ami. But a more literal translation of that statement would be, I am, don't be afraid. It's the exact same uh, connection, Greek phrase, that Jesus will later use in this chapter and later use throughout the Gospel of John when he says things like, I am, ego, I me, the bread of life. And when you hear Jesus say, I am, you can't help but also hear the the story of the burning bush of Exodus 3. When Moses asked the Lord in the burning bush, how will I identify you? And he says, tell your fellow Israelites, I am, that I am has sent you. And so Jesus is not just identifying himself as his friend. Jesus is saying, Don't be afraid. I am. Saying something far more about himself than just the fact that he's there. And as soon as Jesus gets into the boat with them, the disciples realize that they were immediately where they were going. It seems like another impossible miracle, or just a comment on the fact that when you are with Jesus, You're where you need to be. Again, as I said right at the start, we have two miracles where Jesus does the impossible. It is humanly impossible to feed 5,000 people with no resources except for five loaves of bread and two fish. It is humanly impossible to just walk across water as though it was not an obstacle at all. And yet, Jesus did both, which leads to the question, well, why? And again, a lot of that will be explained and developed as we continue to work our way through chapter six. But at least for this week, let's just remember there are a few things that are done and si- let's first of all remember that these things are done as signs. To point us to a deeper understanding and appreciation of just who Jesus is. And in the text, when we see Jesus, we see someone who cares. He cares about the needs of people. In looking at the people, he sees them. He sees their needs. And he meets them. He meets them in the moment, and he meets them eternally. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus would give them whatever they wanted. If after eating the fish and the bread, they were like, wow, that was really good, I'm full. Uh, Hey, let's get some dessert here, some ice cream. Come on, Jesus, can can we get some of that? And uh, Jesus would not have given them that, because that's not something that they needed. But Jesus was able to give them what they needed, even when it was impossible. And when Jesus did the impossible in walking on water to meet his disciples, he shows that he is the I am. Only God can multiply food. Only God can change the nature of physics so that he would be able to walk on water. With God, the impossible can happen. And that's just an incredible reminder that when with God, the impossible can happen with us. Now again, that does not mean that Jesus will always give us what we want. But it at least means that when we are with Jesus, we know that we have all that we need. We are where we need to be. And therefore, we can have the strength to do what he asks of us even when it feels impossible. When we say, it's impossible for me to stand against that temptation. When we're with Jesus, it's possible. When we say, I can't face this health crisis and challenge, I don't think I can do it, it's impossible. When we rest in Jesus and we know that he is in control and in charge, it's possible. When we say, someone like me can never be saved. as for all these other good Christians that gather here every Sunday. For those people that are far better than I. But I could never be spared. I'm not good enough of a person Jesus says, don't be afraid, I am. And where I fed 5,000 people and where I walked on the water, I will also walk out of the grave. I will do the impossible and reclaim my life. And when I do that, that means that I can also heal you and reclaim your life, not just for glory after you die, but reclaim your life right now. So the invitation is, come, walk with me, sit at my feet. And when we are with Jesus, the impossible can happen. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, as human beings, we are limited. And in those limitations, we struggle to know what we are limited by and what we just refuse to do. And we put limits on ourselves when we think that following you or being the type of people you call us to be is impossible. But I pray, Lord, that through this series, and as we study your word in general, as we engage with it in a day-in and day-out basis, as we walk with you, that we would recognize that when we are with you, we have everything that we need. And therefore, when you do call us, to go and live or to do certain things that just seem impossible, that we would have the faith to trust that when we are with you, all things are possible. So Lord, we surrender our lives to you. And may that be evident in the way that we live our lives in this coming week, how we use our time, how we use our resources, how we stand against temptation, and how we serve others in our community with the gifts that you have given to us. May our ears be open to what you are calling of us, even when it seems impossible. But all of this can only be done in the power and through the strength of your name, and so that's why we pray in the name of Jesus all these things. Amen.